health policy debates in the United States have been defined by disagreement about the proper role of government in ensuring that people have health insurance coverage and access to affordable care. Although COVID-19 is dominating policy discussions at the moment, these issues are likely to feature prominently in the upcoming federal elections. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Matthew Fiedler, a fellow at the USC Brookings Schaefer Initiative for Health Policy. As part of the journal series on the fundamentals of U.S. health policy, Dr. Fiedler has written a perspective article about government-based solutions and conflicting opinions on policy changes that could improve the U.S. healthcare system. Dr. Fiedler, why do you think there's so much disagreement in the United States about government involvement in health insurance and health care? Have similar debates been playing out in other countries? I think at core, the problem in the United States is that we don't have consensus about the appropriate aims of health policy. And a lot of that reflects differences in, frankly, underlying values among different people in different political parties and people with different perspectives, particularly about whether the government has a core responsibility to provide health insurance coverage, whether government policy appropriately should focus on improving the well-being of lower-income people and moderate-income people, and whether fundamentally the government has a role to play in intervening in healthcare markets or whether that represents a sort of impermissible imposition on individual liberty. I think you layer on top of that some fundamentally empirical disagreements about the value of health insurance and the best way to expand health insurance, and you end up with a debate very much like the one we've had over the last more than 10 years now. I think in other countries, particularly on those value questions, I think they're more settled. It's more established that there's a fundamental governmental role in ensuring that everybody has at least some form of health insurance. You say in your article that as you came into office, the Trump administration supported legislation that would repeal or sharply curtail many of the ACA's coverage provisions, and at the same time, reduce eligibility and funding for the pre-ACA Medicaid program. In fact, how much has the administration done to further that agenda? So legislatively, the only substantial policy that was ultimately enacted was repeal the ACA's individual mandate, which was a significant portion of the ACA, but certainly not the entirety by any stretch of the imagination of the policy changes um, the ACA brought about. Administratively, the administration has continued to try to make some progress, particularly in curtailing Medicaid eligibility. So we've seen the administration work with states on waivers that place work requirements on eligibility for Medicaid. Um, those waivers have encountered some challenges in the court, but the administration has certainly put a lot of effort into constraining Medicaid eligibility in that way. Another policy question that you talk about in the article is how to cope with the lack of competition in many healthcare provider markets. So why is market concentration considered a problem? And what has allowed hospital and physician markets to get as concentrated as they are in many parts of the country? When we think about the problems that flow from lack of competition, they're twofold. The first one that we often think about is that when there's less competition, the providers in the market can demand higher prices from insurers, and we have strong evidence that that's the case. I think what is also true, um, or at least there's evidence that is true, is that it can reduce quality of care, that the pressure that providers feel that their patients may elect to seek care somewhere else can help catalyze various efforts at quality improvement. And so when that competitive pressure is not there, those efforts don't happen. I think that second set of effects can be more heterogeneous in that consumers may be well-equipped to assess some dimensions of quality and not others. 
And so we may see that pressure for quality improvement along some dimensions of quality of care, but not others. To answer the question of how we've gotten where we are today with many markets being very concentrated, I think there's two basic things going on. One is, particularly in hospital markets, there are real economies of scale. And that, as hospital systems have attempted to exploit those economies of scale, they've naturally gotten bigger. I think the other component of what we've seen, however, is that many of the mergers that happen, including some that probably harm competition on net, are not being challenged by antitrust authorities. And I think that reflects a whole host of challenges, limited resources for antitrust enforcement agencies that limits their ability on how many mergers they can challenge in any particular year. And it reflects the fact that in some cases, even when antitrust authorities have brought in cases to block mergers that there's a strong reason to believe would harm competition, they've ended up losing in court. So both of those things have contributed to the environment we see today in practice. What effects do you expect the COVID-19 pandemic and the associated recession to have on competition and consolidation? I think it is entirely possible that we will see some acceleration in movement towards more consolidated markets, that some healthcare providers, because they've lost a lot of volume over the last six months and may lose more volume over the months to come, end up in a somewhat financially precarious position. And that forces them to accept being purchased by either the local hospital system or some other form of investor. I think in many cases, physician practices or hospitals that will be bought out as a result of COVID-19 are probably practices and hospitals that would have been targets for buyout over the next several years anyway. So the long run effects on the level of competition may not be that large but we may move up a lot of consolidation that would have happened down the road into the next several years. You mentioned the limits of antitrust enforcement. What other policy options are there for reducing the price of medical services? And how would any of those policies potentially affect physicians? Broadly speaking, we can think about two basic structures. We could think about various types of price regulation approaches. So some um, states historically regulated hospital prices, and one could imagine bringing back those types of systems into wider use and applying sort of related types of tools to physician services markets as well. I think the other strand of approaches that has been considered is introducing what's called a public option. So public option would because it would, in most conceptions, pay prices based on the prices Medicare pays rather than the higher prices that are typically paid in commercial insurance coverage, could achieve similar goals of reducing the prices paid for healthcare services. It would achieve that directly to the extent people enrolled in the public option, but it could also increase insurers' bargaining leverage vis-a-vis healthcare providers and so reduce prices in private plans as well. So those are the two main policy tools that people consider. I think we've got good reason to believe that in large part because of limits in competition, that healthcare prices in the United States are too high. I think what we don't know is exactly how much too high they are and how much room there is to reduce them through these sorts of tools. It's also the case that even if prices are indeed too high, there are ways in which reducing prices could impair quality of care, either by putting healthcare providers in financially difficult positions or by simply reducing the incentive to invest uh, in improved quality because those investments in quality can no longer be rewarded by 
either higher prices or so the additional volume those investments might allow providers to attract would no longer be as valuable as they would have been at the higher prices. Finally, looking forward, how much of President Trump's health policy agenda do you think he could accomplish if he were elected for four more years? And how much success would a Biden administration have in terms of broadening health insurance coverage? So I think a Trump administration, if it had a Republican Congress, would very likely take another attempt at repealing substantial portions of the Affordable Care Act. So particularly the ACA's Medicaid expansion and its subsidies for individual market coverage. Given how close the administration got last time around, I think it's quite plausible that they would be successful in repealing most of the rest of the ACA given another bite at the apple. There's obviously a lot of uncertainty there, but I think that would be where I would place my bets, at least. In terms of a Biden administration, I think you would likely see some effort to expand the subsidies available to people who purchase individual market coverage and to encourage Medicaid expansion by the states that have not done so. I think the harder question is whether you would see creation of a public option or something similar to it. As we discussed, the scope for a public option to reduce the prices of healthcare services is potentially quite broad. And so the potential to reduce overall healthcare spending is potentially quite substantial. The flip side of that is the opposition from healthcare providers and particularly from hospitals would be very intense to that type of policy approach. And so I think there's greater questions about whether that type of policy change would occur even in the Biden administration. Thank you, Dr. Fiedler.